bulletin with you. It's printed there for you if you don't have a Bible. Just three verses. I was planning on preaching on uh, verses 1 through 9, uh, but this, that one section was just too much there. And then really when I, was, when I was diving into this section, this verses 1 through 3, where Paul is really trying to settle a dispute between two women that he loves. Uh, that's, the, that's the gist of these three verses. Uh, just so much, so much relevance here uh, to the day in which we live. I've actually been really thankful to study the book of Philippians. I've never personally been able to dip, deep dive uh, into the book of uh, Philippians, but this letter is really an extraordinary letter from an extraordinary uh, man. He's to an extraordinary church, honestly. And he's, as you know, as, I've been, as you've been here for a while, Paul is in prison when he writes this letter. And he writes it to these Philippian believers, and he is constantly praising them and telling them how much he loves them and appreciates them. And you'll see that today, and you'll see that in the last three sermons uh, that we preach as we close out this letter that Paul wrote to the Philippian church. He loves them, and it's a good reminder for us just here at the outset to remember that the church is people. That's what it is. Like the church meets, it gathers, that's important, but the church is people. The churches oftentimes and should, and hopefully we will one day, have their own building so they can use for ministry, uh, and it's okay to call that building a church, but the meaning of the church, the purpose of the church is this people. And so Paul spends his letter talking to them about how to love each other, and he spends really most of this letter talking um, about unity and talking about that and and that also plays into what we're about to do as a church as we kind of dive into community groups and I encourage y'all to be committed uh, to that and to participate in that but Paul is is also writing to them almost as a father writes to his children he's writing to them and and warning them and, and encouraging them and to to stop doing to things that that are that will destroy them and encouraging them to live in such a way that will help them to flourish which is as fathers that's all what we want for our children is is for them to flourish and two things that he that he spends time doing is he teaches against false teachers and we looked at both of them uh, two sets of false teachers one set of false teachers is teaching Jesus plus something equals salvation. Jesus plus some aspect of the law, whatever they were jonesing on at the moment, Jesus plus some aspect of the law equals salvation. And this is the, the error that we find, for example, in the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church uh, that teach something contrary to the gospel that Paul and Jesus preached, which is Jesus plus something will give you salvation. And then the second set of false teachers uh, teaches that the grace of God means that you have a license to do whatever you want to do. And, and to do things that are contrary to what the Word of God begs you not to do, the very reason um, that Jesus came and died, and, and we see this in, in also in a, in a lot of different expressions. But today, we're going to look at the final encouragement of the Apostle Paul to unity. It's like the fifth one. And it's the final one, four-chapter letter. It's not very long. But the unity has been, even though these other things have been happening, unity has been the primary theme, along with joy, which we'll talk about next week, of this letter that he wrote um, to the Philippians. And unity, fittingly enough, it's why, we, it's why we chose the book to go through, is the theme of the day, is it not? Almost everywhere we look, we're seeing unity, unity, unity. Inaugural speech from President Biden. What was the theme? Unity. Right? What's been everywhere on everyone's lips through the protests and through the confusion through the pandemic, it's been unity, 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 unity. We need unity. We've been talking and talking and talking and talking and talking and talking about unity, and the strange thing is we haven't achieved it. 
actually not even close. It seems that we're separating in the church, outside of the church. What's going on? And what does the Bible have to say specifically about unity? Let me give you an interesting illustration of this. Um, one of my girls got to go see Lady Gamecocks play basketball. And on the program that they brought home, there was an advertisement for Coca-Cola. And this was the advertisement. Together tastes better. Together tastes better. Now we're using unity to sell soda. You know what I mean? It, this, is, this is what we're thinking and what we're breathing and everything like that, but we're not seeing it. Because the game starts and one team stands for the national anthem, one team sits. Apparently we're not drinking enough Coke, right? I need, some, I need to get some more Coca-Cola up in there or something. But we're all, we feel the division and we're all crying for unity and wanting for unity and yet we're not achieving it. So, what does Paul say in this specific situation? What I love about this situation, and I'm going to highlight, is all of the other uh, sections about unity in the book of Philippians have been very theory-oriented, and now he's diving into a very specific disagreement between two women that he loves. Okay, So give your attention to God's Word. Uh, first three verses. Uh, so I'll take it easy on you guys. We read 35 verses earlier. Three now. Okay, So you're good. It'll be good. All right. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Yoda, Yodia, and I plead with Syndicate to with, agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you also, local yoke fellow, to help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, very simply we ask that you would be with us as we worship you over your word, and that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's a big idea this morning. Um, the title of the sermon is Militant Unity. Militant Unity. They seem to be contradiction in terms. We'll get to that in a minute. Here's the idea. big idea is unity is impossible without the militant commitment to the tension of love. Say that again. That's a lot. A lot going on there, right? Unity is impossible without militant commitment to the tension of love. Okay? If, if you, and you have, all of you have to some degree, if experiencing given love, you know that there's a tension to walk. A tension to walk where, where you sometimes need to extend grace and just forgive or whatever, and there's also the other side of the tension where sometimes you need to push and rebuke. There's a tension there. There's a balance that you have to walk when you love someone. And if you or they are not walking that balance, you separate. You, you get in an argument, which happens. We're sinful people. Maybe it's your sin. Maybe it's their sin. You get in an argument. At that point, someone has to walk the tension. Ask forgiveness. Repent. Say, I'm sorry. Or come and say, listen, I'm sorry. I, you, just, you were wrong there. I'm begging you, please. Can, can we talk about it? You know? There's a tension that we have to walk in love. Okay? And that same tension, I think, drives us to unity. Many of us have heard so much about unity lately. I know I've been tempted, maybe you have been, to give up on the subject altogether. Well, it's just not possible. Unity is just not possible. Why don't we just 
I'll be in my tribe, you be in your tribe, and we'll just we'll get along on our different tribes, and we won't even try the unity thing anymore. What's the problem with that? What happens when you get a disagreement in the tribe, right? Then what happens is you got to form a tribe A, B, you know? And that, that's what's happening. We see that happening all the times. We feel that happening, and it's a temptation. Is there a time to do that? Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. This is a theme that, that is in a strand that we see all throughout the Bible and in Jesus' teaching and right here. In the Old Testament, isn't it interesting? As God brought about salvation, what does He do? He creates a people. Interesting. And He gave them a law. He gave them a land. He gave them a purpose. He gave them His presence for what goal? Theologically, God's glory and His goal and His good um, that would come specifically through their unity. That other nations that don't worship God would be able to look in on this nation and say there's something unique about this people. I bet it's the God they worship that's allowing us to be together and not fracture in the same way that we are. It's not dog-eat-dog in this community. Why? It must be the God they worship. Jesus teaches in John 17, chapter 20. He's about to go to the cross and he's praying. This is his prayer to God as he's about to go to the cross. I do not ask for these only, his disciples who are right around the corner, there's 12 men. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. And I'm not only praying for these guys, I'm praying for the ones that will believe one day. You and me. What does he pray for them? That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may be in us. So, that the, so why? So that the world may believe you have sent me. In other words, as Michael prayed earlier, the greatest example of the unity is, the, is God himself. Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the prayer is, is that, hey, we want, to be like, we want to be like you, together in one. For what goal? That the world might know Jesus Christ and the power of His salvation. Four points this morning. Not all of them get equal air time, so don't worry about it. Unity requires a love committed to truth. Unity requires a love committed to the best interests of others. Unity requires a love committed to the goal. And then unity requires living in the tension of love. All right, so four points. Unity requires love committed to four things. Truth, the best interests of others, the goal, and the tension of love. First of all, unity requires a love committed to truth. Paul here is giving us a very practical example of how to bring two people together. These women he loves are in disagreement with each other, probably about church stuff, probably about kingdom stuff. And some of your translation uh, call, this, uh, call this, in verse 3, this loyal, I think I might have said local the way, but anyway, loyal, loyal yoke fellow is my translation. But some of you may say true companion, right? Commentators agree this is probably an indiv- a specific individual uh, named, his name's tough to pronounce, Cyzygus. Okay, I'm going to try to say that well. Cyzygus is that word, and his, his name means yoke fellow, bringing people together. That's what the name means. But he's probably talking about what, talking to a guy in the church saying, hey, bring, listen, bring these guys together. I love them. They've been like champions on my team. Help them come together. Help them be unified. That's the specific, the, what's going on uh, in this passage. They're pursuing uh, unity, and there's been a problem. that Unity requires uh, truth. Both of these women need to see the truth in some aspect. Maybe it's the truth of one of their personal sins. Maybe they've gotten off kilter, but they need to come back to the truth. 
that Paul and God are trying to build a house with the right tools, and what I want to argue is that the foundation of unity is truth and commitment. I'll say that again. That the foundation of unity is truth and commitment. That the tools for unity are truth, militant commitment, humble love, a common goal, and a tension that we need to live in that can only be resolved by being empowered by the Spirit. But first off, truth and militant commitment. The title of the sermon is Militant Unity, and I love that, uh, I love that title because of the irony of it. In our minds, we think unity can't be militant. That's opposite. that's not how it works when we think of unity oftentimes our minds run to unicorns rainbows flowers and acoustic guitars as if we're going to achieve unity by more songs poem videos speeches artwork and demonstrations about unity now again i'm not i'm not anti those things all those things have a place in fact in this very letter the most profound section of it is a poem that paul writes about the the glory of Christ coming down to be a servant. There's totally a place for artistic expression, unity and demonstration speeches, all of that. The problem is, you can't achieve unity merely by those means. There has to be something else. The meaning of militant unity in this context, when I use this word, is that this covenantal commitment that God calls His people to into unity. It's, it's why Paul, if from prison, is so upset about this issue that he takes the time to write about this squabble between two women. Okay, This covenantal commitment that God calls us to, that God commands us to unity. Paul demands unity, and Jesus aggressively and passionately teaches us to be unified, not as an option, but a requirement. The sum total of the teaching of the unity in Bible in terms of our responsibility is this. Fight for it, demand it, die for it, there's no plan B. Militant. Unity. In this specific passage, verse 1, says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm. Right? He's pointing back to what he talked about just a minute ago in the letter, the paragraph before, but he's saying, stand firm. On what? The truth that I just told you about. Stand on it. It's a foundation, right? And then it's interesting, when he gets into the the argument between the two ladies here, he says, I plead with Yodia. I plead with Syndiki to agree with each other in the Lord. Repeats the word twice. He is urging them and begging them, the whole community, these two women and this one guy, to fight for the unity Chapters and the, the whole letter, again, I'm going to do a summary just real quick of, of, of the whole letter in terms of the context of unity. I'll read one verse, chapter 1 and verse 27. Chapter 1, verse 27 of, of the book of Philippians. Paul says, uh, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Well, what does that mean? Then whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm, same, same thing, in one spirit, contending as one man for faith of the gospel. What's the goal? What does stand firm mean? Fight as one man. Work for what? This ambiguous unity thing? No, faith in the gospel. Truth. You see? Okay? Stand in the gospel. 
And then the whole chapter 2 basically is devoted to unity. A good section of chapter 3, this section here, and then this little section here is devoted to unity. So uh, all that to say, it's a big theme in the letter, all right? Now, this is what I, I, as I'm looking at what the Apostle Paul says and, and trying to bring it down to real life for us to think about together, this is the main problem that I see with our pursuit of unity, is a lack of a common definition of truth and what that is, okay? You cannot achieve unity without a common understanding of truth. Be unified. Be unified. About what? What is unity? What does it look like? Or should I disagree? What if I passionately disagree? Am I, or you passionately disagree? Who's right? Where's the truth? You can't achieve unity without a common understanding of truth. Nationally, whether you agree or not on how the nation was founded or who and all that stuff, all that stuff's controversy right now. Statues being torn down and all that stuff. But the founding of this country, doesn't matter if you agree with it or not, was found on common beliefs. It was founded on common truths. Otherwise, they couldn't have got it together. Right? There was common truths to the church. We're called to be the light of the world. And that can only happen if we're committed to what? Truth. Okay? We can only be unified around truth. Truth is the foundation of, of unity. Stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in Christ and the truth that comes from that. You cannot achieve unity unless you have a common definition of what it is and what it's centered on. And that's the problem. We're just talking about it. Just talking about unity. Unity, unity, unity. We can't, we, we, the solution is we need a common truth. Let's take a couple specific examples. Let's take this, this passage and kind of pull it off the page just for, just for a minute, if, if we can. Um, let's talk about some of the real things that we're experiencing right now. Uh, the, the race issue that we're all in every day, hear about, feel every single day. What, what, how's the, in the, of the core of that issue oftentimes is unity around equality. Bad goal. It's a bad goal. People are not equal and they never will be. Certain people have certain talents and gifts and abilities that other people don't, and it's just the way it is. I wasn't created to play basketball. I just don't jump that high. I touched the rim one time. One time, though. Okay? It was like the, one of the highlights of my life. I made it, but it's just not going to work. Right? I'm, I can't find equality there. You see what I'm saying? That's a bad goal. There's, there's no truth there. Everyone's created equal. No, they're not. But everyone's committed in God's image. Well, that is true. That's a good goal. Treat people with respect and dignity based on the image of God that's inside of them. That's truth. That's a good goal. You see what I'm saying? Let's per we need this common understanding of what truth is. Treat someone like a human being made in the image of God. Someone that Christ may have shed his own blood for. Well, let's stand on that truth. Maybe we can solve the problem that way. Okay? Or, or COVID-19. Unity, the, the, what we seem to be pursuing around COVID-19 is unity around keeping everybody safe. Bad goal. World's a dangerous place. A lot of stuff going on that's not a good goal. People are never safe. Death is looming for all of us. All of us will die, and there's danger everywhere. But what's a good goal, right? What's a good goal? For some people, the disease is more risky than others. 
and we should try as best we can to, to help some of those people, and, and, but not, not in such a way that isolates our, everyone from, from everything and, and the cure is worse than the disease. What, but what, what does that mean? That means that we need to be committed to what is a good goal. Keeping everybody safe is not a good goal because we're not safe. Treating each other with respect and grace, standing on the truth, and also being able to give a little bit when someone disagrees with you, it's not a bad goal. We have to be centered on truth. Unity for the sake of unity is impossible, but God says in this letter and in this specific disagreement that unity based on the sake of truth is not only possible, it's demanded by God. That unity without truth is impossible, it's just a dream. And oftentimes, there's times not to be unified if, 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 if unity means accepting a lie. The compromise necessary to achieve unity is only possible. because To achieve unity, let's be real, you've got to make compromises at each side. Right, the, why, you, these two women get in this argument, and probably there's truth on both sides of that argument. Right? Isn't that how it always works out? You know, there's probably truth on both sides of that argument. Compromises is necessary for unity, but it's only possible with a common truth that you base your values on. And I think that's why they're asking, I'm going to do it again, Cy-Zygus, Cy-Zygus, right? We'll just call him, uh, what, what is it, my yoke fellow. That's why they're asking yoke fellow to come in, right? Remind these women of the common truth that they've already They've already agreed. Remind them of this truth and, ba- and bound them together, right? Because they've been fighting for it all along. All right, so that's the first point. Unity is impossible without a militant commitment to truth. Number two, unity requires a, 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 requires a love committed to the best interest of others. Okay? Now, Paul's been writing about this over and over again in this passage. And you can see it in how he loves them. Look, look at the verse 1. He says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. That is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. You see those terms of affection? What has Paul given up to be with these people? He's given up all kind of stuff. Uh, he, he, he's suffered in an immense way. Actually, the, in the Philippian, to start the Philippian church, he had to be beat unjustly. He's made tremendous sacrifices on the behalf of other people. and In fact, so have these women. In verse 1 he says, These women who have contended at my side, these are, these are my girls. They've been with me the whole time as we've been pursuing this, this thing together. And he's saying that love has got to be committed to the best interests of others. And what's happening, Paul's saying in this passage is, I think one or both of them have forgotten that. And brother, will you come in and help them remember? Will you help them remember to live the best interest of others. Paul's rebuking them. It's a hard thing to do. He's saying, listen, you got it wrong. Why is he doing that? He might lose the relationship. Why is he doing it? Because he loves them enough to speak the truth to them. It's in their best interest in this circumstance to bring them the truth. In other circumstances, your attitude or the way you present it to someone might not be in their best interest. You just want to show them what you know. So whatever the situation is, but it, it, the, the unity requires a love committed to the best interests of others. And he knows that it's not good for these women who love each other and serve each other and have served with him to be at odds. He knows that bitterness is drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. He knows that this sin on either part, both parts, 
is going gonna, is gonna to be damaging to the church and to these women that he loves. And so he's, he's calling them, and he's asking this man to jump in and to step in um, to make peace. Jesus himself says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What a title, right? Sons get the inheritance back in those days. The girls didn't. So even if you're a lady, you're still son of God. Get the inheritance, right? That's why he uses that male language there, and it doesn't need to be removed, okay? Blessed are the peacemakers. And then Matthew chapter 7, probably the most confused uh, or misinterpreted passage in the New Testament. Judge not, lest you be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. What does that mean? Well, thanks, Jesus. He gives us an illustration. Here's the illustration. Verse 3. We never make it to verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? And do you not notice that the log is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Y'all ever gotten a speck in your eye before? It is painful. It happened to me one time right before I preached, and, and, and I, I, I was crying the whole time. I looked really emotional, you know, because I couldn't get this thing out of my eye. It's really painful. Wouldn't you love someone to come and get that out? But you can't do it if you can't see, because there's a log in your own eye. What's Jesus teaching here? You want to you achieve unity? Deal with your own sin so that you can, you're able to help someone else, Right? And this is what he's calling us. Unity requires a committed, a love committed to the best interest of others. Unity is only possible with a militant commitment to the good of others at the possible expense of yourself. Unity is possible when we consider the good and the best interest of others over our own. But it is not only their interests that need to be protected but God's interests, which leads us to point three, that unity requires a love committed to the goal. Paul's in prison. Why? The gospel, the salvation of people around the world, the starting of the church so that this message can get out to the whole world. He's suffered and he's pursued this commitment because he was committed to that goal. He suffered so much. First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty one. Imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death, five times forty lashes, three times beaten with rods, once stoned, three times shipwrecked, list goes on. Why? Why? Because he's got a goal. And what is he calling these women to? Look at this here in, in, in verse 3. Yes, I ask you, local, oh, it's local, I can't stop saying that, loyal, yoke fellow, Right, this guy? Help these women who've contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. And then he leaves another list of other people who've done the same thing, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow's workers whose names are in the book of life. He's reminding them, we've been a team and we've been crushing it. Y'all get together. Remember the goal? It's unity. It's how you achieve it. Unity is only possible whenever we have the same goal and we're pursuing it, and it's why we can't just talk about it. We've got to figure out what the, what the goal of unity is. Now, I remind you that I don't think, this is, my, this is me talking here, okay? I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but I don't think the world will be able to achieve unity until the church does. This isn't a letter to the Roman Congress. This is a letter to the church. 
starts here. This is a dispute between two women in the church that were extremely influential, right? Starts starts with us. Final point. The big idea is uh, unity is impossible without militant commitment to the tension of love. And the final point is that unity requires living in the tension of love. This is complicated, isn't it? You got to know truth. You got to serve other people. You got to be committed to the goal. You got that's hard to do. You got we have to live in that in that tension. How do to, do we do that? And it's interesting to me that he, this little three verses concludes with the reminder that your names are remit, or are written in the book of life. That God has miraculously saved you. That the reason you're a church to begin with is because God intervened in your life and took you out of the destruction that you were bound for and graciously showered you with his blood that washed away that not only your sin but the guilt of your sin and that because of that that you can be unified and then the second promise is this that because you've received that salvation that he fills you with your spirit and actually gives you the tools and the strength to make it possible your names are written in the book of life if you're in christ and yes, walking in the tension of love is difficult. Parenting is difficult. Marriage is difficult. Friendship is difficult. It's difficult. We're working with people every single day. There's sinners. is difficult. There's a tension that we have to walk in. Are we going to bring the truth hard, soft? Not at all. Am I the one who's in trouble? There's a tension that love brings. And God calls us and empowers us in Christ to walk in that tension of love. Because He calls us to a militant Unity. There is no plan B. Unity is only possible because you need wisdom to discern when to stand up for truth and what truth actually is. Isn't that confusing these days? I find myself asking that question all the time. Where, what is the truth? You need wisdom to know when, when, when it is loving to compromise and when it is loving to rebuke. You need help to reconcile with someone who is locked down against you and doesn't want to hear what you have to say. And you need conviction and repentance when your own sin is the cause of division. Now where does all that wisdom, help, and conviction come from? God's Word and His Spirit. Pastor preached a couple weeks ago. Ephesians 5.18, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Don't fill yourself up with that, but be filled with the Spirit. What does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? Constantly yielding and asking, seeking God in His Word and prayer to lead you and guide you in the complicated tension of unity and life that God has called us to and empowered to us every day. And I'm learning with you what it means to be filled with God's Spirit to walk in this tension of love. As uh, we draw to a close, unity requires a commitment to truth, a love that's committed to the best interests of others, a love that is committed to the goal or the means, the mission, and then the ability in Christ and in His Spirit to live in the tension of love. Unity is impossible without militant commitment to the tension of love. This is a theme that God's had me thinking on for years now. I'm still thinking on him and praying for it and praying through it. And <clears throat> he was help, help, this passage was actually extremely helpful to me. I've tasted a little bit of it. When I moved to Columbia and wanted to plant a church, 
And honestly, was really confused as to how to do that. Still am in many days. And a friend, Jeff Shipman, came from a different denomination and somewhat different, though not really that big a deal, but somewhat different theological background and loved me just because I was in Christ and I was his brother. He saved my life. He really did in a lot of ways. And then took me one day to a group of men sitting around a table from all kind of different theological backgrounds who knew about what was going on in each other's lives, prayed for each other at that table, joked and laughed and partnered for the goal of this area and this city. I had never seen that before. I had never seen that before in my life. There was something, and I didn't know about it then, but there was something sacred about it. That's because there's no plan B. Militant unity is what we're called to, and God will give us the strength to do it. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time over your word, and we do pray, God, I pray specifically that the the truth that is directly from it would sit on our hearts and bring us inspiration and conviction, and what came from me and not from you would just fall away, because it's not relevant. And Lord, we ask that you would help us as we finish worshiping you today. And that we would leave here as we've worshipped you together. And we'd worship you individually every single day. And that we would live together on purpose, on mission. And we would bring others into the family. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.